This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're talking about value-based kidney care in the month of March, which happens to be National Kidney Month. So let's talk about chronic kidney disease for a minute. It kills more people than breast or prostate cancer each year, and you're not going to see NFL players wearing socks and gloves to increase awareness, and you're not going to see massive fund runs raising money to treat chronic kidney disease. 37 million people in the U.S. have this. It's 15% of adults, and about 90% of those with the disease don't even know they have it. And the cost of kidney disease, they're just unsustainable. Medicare pays over $100 billion for people with all stages of renal disease. It's about 20% of all Medicare spending. It's about $24,000 per person with someone that has non-end-stage kidney disease, which is twice the spending for the average Medicare beneficiary. And then you spend about $89,000 for dialysis patients and $35,000 for a kidney transplant patient. While just 1% of Medicare beneficiaries have kidney failure, kidney failure accounts for over 7% of all Medicare spending. Eric, you call it out so well. It's such a big challenge, and I commend the efforts of the last administration to solve this problem. With President Trump signing an executive order in July 2019, to initiate a series of new alternative payment models that began in 2021, which would transform the delivery of care for patients with chronic kidney disease and ESRD. Over the last 20 months since the announcement of the last administration's Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative, there's been a noticeable uptick in private sector investments in new value-based care kidney partnerships and expanded services among providers, payers, specialty care management companies focused on kidney disease and dialysis organizations. And in fact, I've got to highlight the intelligence brief that the ACLC wrote on that market dynamic and the shifts that are, have occurred since the executive order. And today, though, we're going to focus in on one specialty care management company leading the way in value-based kidney care, Cricket Health, led by CEO Bobby Sapuka. He's joining us today on the podcast to discuss how we win this race to value 
with integrated nephrology and dialysis care for people with chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Bobby as we learn how to win this race to value. Bobby, thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. So happy to have you. And by the way, it's National Kidney Month. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Very excited to be here and can't think of a better way of celebrating National Kidney Month. Well, Bobby, I thought a great place to start our conversation today would be to set the stage for why we need to focus on value-based kidney care in our country. We have almost 40 million people in the U.S. suffering from kidney disease, and it's currently the ninth leading cause of death. A treating kidney disease costs the Medicare program $130 billion, and although patients with kidney failure account for only 1% of the Medicare population, they're about 7% of the overall Medicare spending costs. And it seems like we have these, despite the massive costs associated with kidney disease, we currently treat it in almost an entirely reactive and uniform way. As a result, the vast majority of people whose kidneys fail end up on costly in-center dialysis. I mean, I believe it's somewhere like 90% of patients with kidney failure end up on dialysis. And it's such a bleak scenario since the mortality rate of dialysis patients are about 40% when you annualize the incidence rate. And if you're fortunate enough to survive that first year on dialysis, you're likely not going to make it another five. So I can't help but think, Bobby, that the system is designed to fail patients with chronic kidney disease since 1972, a diagnosis of ESRD provides you with an entitlement to Medicare, regardless of how old you are. As great as that is, it seems like an unintended consequence of that policy for healthcare providers to wait until patients develop ESRD so their Medicare benefits can kick in, and then you can put them on expensive in-center dialysis. But now we're moving into this new direction of value-based kidney care, to which you're leading with Cricket Health, and I'd love to hear your perspective on the new federal effort underway to implement a value-based kidney care model that focuses on preventing the onset of kidney disease by earlier identification and increased use of home-based dialysis and kidney transplants. So Bobby, do you think the new executive order on advancing American kidney health, which was signed in July of 2019 by President Trump, is a step in the right direction to transform kidney care with the introduction of these new APMs? For our listeners out there, there's four voluntary payment options, collectively known as kidney care choices, as well as a mandatory ESRD treatment choices model called the ETC. Would love to hear your thoughts, Bobby, on this new direction and how this sets the stage for value-based kidney care. Well, first and foremost, I mean, you have described the challenge that we face in kidney care incredibly well. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take you on a roadshow and you can talk to all of our prospective customers because you've teed up the problem exactly how, how we have. The incentives in this system are absolutely topsy-turvy. The statistic that you cited of 1% of the population accounting for 7% of the cost is the one that jumps out at me, probably most of all. And what's amazing about that is that's actually just the dialysis population. That's just ESKD. When you think of, and there's only call it 600,000 Americans on dialysis today. But as you know, there are nearly 40 million Americans suffering from kidney disease. Even if you just focus on the late stage, call it stage four and stage five, that's 10 million Americans uh, with kidney disease. And yet, because we put this pot of money, uh, pot of gold, if you will, with the 1972 act, making all dialysis patients eligible for Medicare, all of the time, attention, resources, 
money focus has been on that 600,000 Americans on dialysis as opposed to the tens of millions with kidney disease. So that's exactly why we have this problem. You're exactly right. But to answer your question, yeah, I think that the executive order signed by President Trump is a massive step forward. And I think that what is being rolled out over the next, of course, the next several months by CMS and CMMI are incredibly exciting. I actually, before I joined Cricket two and a half years ago, I worked at Fresenius Medical Care, the big dialysis provider, for about eight and a half years. I ran government affairs. I worked very closely with the folks at CMS and Congress to try and bring new and innovative payment models to this space. And one of the things I'm most proud of is I was part of a very small group of people who wrote a white paper that became the ESCO program, which was the shared savings program for the dialysis population that Medicare rolled out several years ago. And I remember vividly having a conversation with then administrator Marilyn Tavener at CMS, asking her that while as great as that proposed program is, unless and until you go upstream and start engaging patients prior to kidney failure, we're only going to be so successful. And she agreed wholeheartedly and said, you're exactly right. I just, we have to draw the lines where we, where we are having this new program start at dialysis because, you know, they were focused on rolling out our program simultaneous with a bunch of the primary care ACOs and need to draw bright lines between the two. Since then, CMS has realized, again, that while as much as we all want to increase the penetration of home dialysis, as much as we all want to reduce that massive spike in mortality that you cited, 40% annualized mortality for the incident dialysis population, the only way to do that is to engage patients prior to kidney failure. And so this new program that's rolling out is incredibly exciting. We are uh, poised to work with several practices across the country on the KCC model, and I can't think of a, a better and more important thing to happen in kidney care in an awful long time. Bobby, I've got to agree with you. This movement to value-based kidney care is truly a historic opportunity to really correct these design flaws that you've mentioned in our care delivery system. So we're dealing with an entrenched legacy model that focuses on kidney failure, approaches organ supply passively, and defaults patients to in-center dialysis, but it's going to be disrupted in a big way. By design, these new kidney care APMs will allow us to transform the system of care. So the voluntary kidney care choices model will focus on kidney health and incentivize earlier detection and intervention of disease to ultimately slow the progression of kidney failure. In addition, the mandatory SRD treatment choices model will increase home dialysis and transplantation rates. And I know that this seismic expansion of value-based kidney care with these new APMs has some very lofty goals associated with it. The target date for reaching the aims of value-based kidney care transformation is 2030 with three federal policy goals for that timing. For our listeners, I'll go ahead and list the goals. Number one, reduce the risk of kidney failure by 25%. Number two, improve access to and quality of person-centered treatments by having 80% of new kidney failure patients receive home dialysis or transplant. And number three, increase access to transplants by doubling the number of available kidneys. I couldn't be more excited to see the action taken on in a bipartisan way with some major goal setting for transformation in the next decade. Given the unbelievable vision for value-based kidney care innovation by the federal government and the realignment of incentives to achieve it, do you think the 2030 federal policy goals for kidney care transformation are really achievable? I get less hung up on the specific numbers than I do in sort of the desire for the magnitude of change. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure we're gonna hit these specific numbers, but I ultimately don't think it matters. And here's why. If you look at just 
the one statistic that we kind of started with, which is that 12% of the dialysis population today in America dialyzes at home. That lags other nations to such an alarming degree. And I think that's what uh, folks for an all, a lot of observers have looked at as sort of the, the bellwether example for why this, this delivery system for kidney care in the United States is probably, if you were to design the worst imaginable healthcare delivery system for kidney patients, you'd probably come up with the one that we've got here in America. Costs are astronomical. Outcomes for patients are terrible. Mortality rates are through the roof. Everyone's dialyzing in the center, not at home. It just doesn't make any sense really for anyone. You look at whether it's New Zealand or Australia or Singapore, Italy, some Scandinavian countries who are looking at home dialysis rates in the multiples of what we have here in America. There's no doubt we have to make set big audacious goals. Even if we only get halfway there, I think we'll we'll make great strides. So let me give you an example by that. Cricket has you know, launched several years ago, again, with the premise of engaging patients prior to kidney failure. Today, the status quo is 60 to 65% of people who start dialysis do what's called crash into dialysis. They don't know they have the disease, or if they do know, they haven't seen a nephrologist. So they show up in an ER on a Friday and say, I don't understand. I feel terrible. I have chest pains. I have blurred vision. The doctor runs some tests, very simple blood tests, and discovers that the patient's kidneys have failed. They plunk a catheter in the patient's neck and tell her that you're on dialysis today and for the rest of your life. She doesn't know she has any treatment options because she hasn't doesn't even know she has the disease. Or again, if she knows she has the disease, she hasn't prepared for it. And it's not because it's her fault. It's because there's just a complete lack of coordination between primary care and nephrology. And there's been no mechanism, frankly, no payment mechanism to reimburse people for aggressive care management and CKD care. That has started to change with the new payment models, both in the commercial and public space, which is why we're so excited. So as we engage payers early, and as a result, engage their members early, we are able to enroll patients in stage four, stage five, deploy our care teams to them, help them understand their disease, help them understand their treatment options, so that as they progress towards kidney failure, they're better equipped to get on a transplant, select home dialysis as their therapy of choice. They understand the disease and they can make a better, more informed decision. That I think is the goal. And so if, again, if you look at the patients who have gone through our platform, patients are three times more likely to start dialysis at home after working with cricket clinicians than they are uh, based on the status, the status quo. 36% of our patients start dialysis at home. Patients are twice as likely to start dialysis in an outpatient setting after going through the cricket program. So if we can make improvements like that across the board, I think we'll go an awful long way towards getting to the goals. So the question that gets asked a lot is, and this is where you're going, where does it end up? Can we get to a 40% home penetration rate, 50%, 60%? I don't know. And the, and the challenge here is that getting patients to dialyze at home, it's a multifactorial problem. There's lots of challenges to this. Patients may not have the support at home. They may not have the space at home to store the supplies that are necessary. Lots of nephrologists here in the United States actually are not trained adequately, especially the newer doctors who are coming out of fellowship on home therapies. All of these things need to change, but the low-hanging fruit, to be sure, is the fact that we are not engaging patients early. We're not helping them understand their disease well in advance of kidney failure so that they can prepare themselves and make the choices to, again, pursue a transplant, dialyze at home, all with an eye towards making in-center dialysis the treatment of last resort. It just sounds very similar to a lot of the conversations that we've had with palliative care physicians lately on a number of our episodes that so much work 
going into helping a patient understand their disease really pays off in the end for better choices and lower costs. And it just sounds like either you're aligned with or you have training that aligns with palliative care. I'm just wondering if there's intentional effort there or if it's just a, an overlap that's just by chance. I suppose it's partly by chance, partly intentional. I, mean, I, I think there is an overlap. I think that, I mean, I, but I think it's part of hopefully where the healthcare system is going writ large, helping understand where the patients are in their own personal journey. What are their values? What are their priorities? What are they looking to accomplish? There's a study done out of Dartmouth several years ago that lots of observers, Tul Gawande and others have cited that highlights the discrepancy between doctors' assumptions of what patients want and actually what the patients truly did want or value. Docs typically thought in the breast cancer context that 70% of patients thought that keeping the breast was the most important thing in the world. And yet it turned out that it was closer to 7%. And it was not because the docs misinterpreted things. It was because the docs never asked. And it's, again, not their fault. Consultations are short. It's a high-stress environment. But there was never the connection to sit down and really meet the patients where they were and understand what were their priorities. As we sit down with patients today, again, nephrologists, I was talking to a large nephrology practice the other day, and I asked them, when you are discussing modality selection with a patient, should they dialyze at home? Should they dialyze in the in-center? Should they think about transplant? How long do you talk to them? And the doctor said, between 15 and 30 minutes. And I said, okay, is there any follow-up? He said, we should follow up, but we we don't have the, the means to do it. And I don't know if our care managers do it. I, I don't know what happens later. That's an appalling description of the healthcare system. And again, these are some of the best doctors in the country, wonderful people, but the system is set up in a means that there's not the adequate patient support. Something like cricket, where you have an auxiliary care team that can support and supplement what the docs are doing is really, really important. That's why I think the move to telehealth, if there's any silver lining to what's happened with the pandemic, it's allowing clinicians like ours to engage with patients uh, via telehealth, giving them a chance for persistent and constant contact. We can communicate with our patients via talk, via text, via phone, via video, synchronously, asynchronously, really allowing the patients to let themselves marinate in, in information that we provide, but then also get back to us, whether it's two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon, when and where they need it most. So once we're able to do that, and we actually, there's a great example of a patient that enrolled in our platform this past summer, three weeks after he started in-center dialysis. He started thinking about home dialysis and really engaged with our, our clinicians. And our nurse and our social worker took the time to understand, to ask the gentleman what he was looking for, what was important to him. He's a very active person. He loves uh, Muay Thai boxing, and he really wanted to get back in the ring. Couldn't do it given the schedule, given how he felt on in-center dialysis, and was asking about home dialysis and peritoneal dialysis in particular. Could he box with a PD catheter? Our staff worked with him, helped educate him, worked with his, his in-center dialysis staff, helped get a PD catheter placed, and he actually just started home dialysis with peritoneal dialysis this past winter. So again, it's finding out what, what's important to the patient, meeting them where they are, and then helping them select the treatment that makes the most sense for them. And if that means that they're an 85-year-old person with COPD for whom dialysis is not appropriate and conservative care and palliative care makes more sense, then that's what we ought to pursue. So I agree with your comment. I think that there's a fair amount of overlap. And our fervent hope is that it's not necessarily intentional where we have to make all the connections, but rather it's hopefully where the healthcare system is going writ large. Well, Bobby, I'm really excited about your patient-centered care uh, approach to patients with chronic 
kidney disease. And it really seems like this is the future of kidney care. It seems like over the last 40 to 50 years, kidney care has experienced far less transformation than other areas like diabetes, cardiology, cancer, HIV, AIDS. We've been failing in kidney care for far too long. And instead of focusing just on dialysis, you know, to your point, we do really need to realize that kidney disease, it's more than ESRD. And this historic stagnation that we've always had in kidney care, which is a very large population in crisis, it seems like there's a hugely abundant opportunity for innovative companies like Cricket Health to come in and change the game. So I wanted to ask more about this innovative care delivery model that you have at Cricket Health and and how it really advances the aims of value-based kidney care. I mean, Cricket Health is really focused on shifting the patient mix away from in-center hemodialysis and providing integrated care when patients are really at their most vulnerable and helping to reduce hospital utilization and readmissions. And what I really like about your model is that you have this tech-enabled multidisciplinary team that consists of nurses and dietitians and social workers and pharmacists and patient peer mentors. And, you know, and you mentioned earlier that 36% of Cricket's ESRD patients actually start dialysis in the home. And that has to be somewhere like probably three to four times the national average. So can you tell our listeners maybe more about this innovative approach to care and how you leverage this multidisciplinary care uh, approach and how that is enabled by technology? And then for our listeners out there that maybe don't really understand the benefits of home dialysis versus in-center dialysis. Can you maybe discuss why it's important to move the needle and, and have dialysis in the home as the preferred treatment option in value-based kidney care? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's been interesting as we've engaged the marketplace to watch the sea change. There is no doubt, as you said at the outset, that there's been a, an appalling lack of innovation in this space for the last 40 or 50 years. It cannot be overstated what an amazing achievement it was to pass the law in 1972 to grant and confer Medicare eligibility to anyone who needed dialysis uh, because their kidneys had failed. It's, it literally saved millions of lives. And yet the unforeseen consequence, I don't think anyone in Congress understood the numbers of people that would come down the pike in terms of the massive explosion of kidney disease fueled by this country's obesity epidemic. And no one could have foreseen the explosion in costs on sort of a unit cost basis in terms of both dialysis rate and also just in inpatient costs. So it's, I suppose, not entirely surprising over the last 20 years or so, so much of the time and attention of commercial payers has been on how do you reduce my dialysis rate? And as Presenius and DeVita and, and there's been, you know, have grown and there's been consolidation in the dialysis space, the market dynamics are such that providers were able to negotiate large high rates. So as we at Cricket and others have gone out to payers to try and talk about exactly what you're saying, bringing the merits of value-based care to the space, for a long time, the, the response was, this is great, this is great, but how can you reduce my dialysis rate? And it took a long time to explain to payers that, listen, as big a challenge as that is for you, dialysis is only 25% of the total cost of care for a ESKD patient. And in point of fact, if you look at the amount you spend on a stage four, stage five a CKD patient, your population, that dwarfs what you spend on dialysis. So it's time to take a holistic approach. The good news, I suppose, if you can call it that, over the last 18 months is that there's been a sea change in terms of payers' perspectives. They understand so much more about the disease state. They understand so much more about what they need to do to attack it. And they're looking for models like Cricket to do a couple of things. One, reduce hospitalizations in the chronic kidney disease population prior to the onset of dialysis. 
Two, dramatically reduce the huge spike in cost that happens as a patient transitions from CKD into ESKD when they transition to dialysis. Again, because so many patients crash into dialysis, as we talked about earlier, they do that in the inpatient setting. Usually it's a massive stress test on the heart. As you indicated it earlier, the mortality rate is so high. This is a huge challenge and, and there's an, an unbelievable amount of cost that's associated with it. And then as they progress into ESKD and are in dialysis, there's an average of two hospital admissions per year for every dialysis patient. So there's a huge inpatient spend even in the ESKD setting. So again, whether it's CKD inpatient spend, ESKD inpatient spend, or the transition spike, those are the three buckets of spend that payers are trying to get their arms around. What we do at Cricket is to do three things, all with an eye of doing the following, which is deliver the right care to the right patient with the right team in the right time and place. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first you have to identify the right patients. Because CKD, because kidney disease is largely asymptomatic until you approach kidney failure, there's a huge chronic problem of undiagnosed and underdiagnosed people with uh, kidney disease. People just don't know they have it. 90% of all kidney disease patients don't know they have it. And half of even late stage kidney disease patients don't know they have it. So what we've been able to do is develop algorithms and, a, and frankly, a, just an amazing data team that can mine claims of payers and identify patients with kidney disease, even if they have not been yet diagnosed. So with our special algorithms, you know, looking for claims associated certainly with hypertension, diabetes, two of the bigger drivers, and incorporating demographic data down to a patient's zip code, we can identify which patients are most likely to have kidney disease. And with greater than 90% accuracy, we can identify actually which stage of the disease they have. We've gone deep with several dozen plans, and we typically we can identify that they have 50% more of their members with kidney disease than they otherwise would have expected. So by identifying the patient, risk stratifying them, we can say, all right, these are the patients who are, would most likely benefit from our platform, and we seek to enroll them in our model. Every patient who enrolls free of charge to them is, as you said, assigned a care team nurse, dietitian, social worker, pharmacist, patient peer mentor, care navigator. And again, as I said earlier, these are not, this is not a nameless, faceless bank of clinicians. If Bianca is your nurse on day one, she's your nurse throughout. It's the idea here is to foster intentional relationships of trust so that the patient feels comfortable calling the nurse, calling the dietitian, calling the patient peer mentor, and having frank and open conversations. I cannot tell you how many conversations, and this sounds remarkable, but how many conversations we have seen via chat or over the phone where patients have talked to peer mentors and asked questions like, am I able to remain sexually active if I have a PD catheter? That is not the kind of question that most patients are going to feel comfortable asking their physician face-to-face -face in that 12 to 15-minute consultation. So by creating this, this comfortable space for the patient, we can help engage them much more in their care. The last piece is delivering this care at the right time and place. And we've talked about it a little. We've developed a virtual platform that allows patients to, there's two components to the platform. One is the learned content. So it's a rich library of FAQs, of videos, all delivered to the patient in a stage appropriate fashion. So we push things to them. If they're first diagnosed, explaining the disease, helping them with diet, with wellness, with exercise. As they progress towards kidney failure, the modules are much more geared towards modality selection, access placement and the like. They can access the full library at their leisure, but we push things to them again in a stage appropriate fashion. And then our clinicians can see real time and get alerts real time, what the patients are reading about, what they're watching, 
that will trigger automatic workflows so that the social worker or the peer mentor or the navigator or the nurse can engage at the specific time on the specific topic that that patient is thinking about or worried about. So putting that all together, the data and analytics function, the care team, the virtual platform, that's what we believe is our secret sauce. And it's why we're seeing engagement rates north of 85% with our enrolled patients and why our retention rate is upwards of 90%. The patients really, really like us, they value us, and that's why they're engaging with our clinicians every two or three days, 10 times a month. So it's been a fascinating ride. We couldn't be more excited at the, at the results we've seen. And more importantly, we couldn't be more excited at the improved outcomes that we're delivering for patients. Bobby, thanks for that explanation. We're talking about how CKD is such a progressive disease with these five stages and each one progressing to further degradation until the patient finally loses kidney function altogether. And we've talked a little bit about how it's preferable to have in-home dialysis rather than in-center treatment. And to truly drive this change in kidney care, you've been talking about the need to move upstream away from just replacement therapies and dialysis, but to intervention beforehand. And this topic about identifying the patients early is critical. And I, I love your explanation of, and the algorithms and the, the data that you're, that you're referencing. I'm thinking about the primary care market, and who, you know, these primary care providers who are going to have such a big role to play here. What can they do with the use of AI and what data sources are they looking for? Are they just going to be looking at claims data? Are they going to be looking at their EHR data? How do primary care providers really identify the 90% of people who have chronic kidney disease but aren't even aware of it, or the 50% who have low kidney function and, and are not on dialysis but don't know that they have it? What are the things that you would tell the primary care providers to be looking at and thinking through? It's a fantastic question. And the great tragedy, it seems to me, is that it's an incredibly simple test to find out if someone has kidney disease. When you go get your physical and you get a blood draw, typically part of the lab panel is a, is a creatinine test. And from there, you can it's just a math formula. You can calculate your GFR. And it's printed out usually on most of your lab results. GFR is uh, your filtration rate, your kidney's filtration rate. So that's an easy test that happens with every physical. So primary care docs know or should know the kidney status for each and every one of their patients. And in point of fact, most primary care docs do the right thing and will uh, prescribe ACE inhibitors and manage hypertension and manage diabetes. And that is, quite frankly, perfectly adequate for stage one, stage two, and first half of stage three kidney disease. It's only in late stage three, 3B, and four and five, where the kidney takes over as the primary driver of the health concerns for CKD patients. It's at that point that there needs to be a handoff. And the National Kidney Foundation and the international associations have come up with guidelines, Kidoki guidelines, of when there should be referrals and how often a nephrologist should see kidney patients. And we've known about these guidelines for years. The challenge is making sure that that handoff between primary care and nephrologists happen in an orderly fashion. Given the gaps in care in this country, unfortunately, that's where the, the handoff just too often doesn't happen. The need for machine learning and the need for AI and the kind of algorithms that we have built is to fill the gap and to work directly with payers, independent of docs, we can help identify patients. We are only going to be as successful, however, as our ability to engage with a nephrologist and to some extent primary care docs so we can have a singular message. Again, we're not looking to supplant nephrologists or primary care docs. We're looking to augment their care. 
we would like nothing more than have our care teams implement the physicians, the pre-established physicians care plans for their patients. So as we engage with nephrologists, there's so many wonderful practices we've talked to over the, across the country who are now understanding the value of having a, a supplemental care team like Cricket be a backstop. And we're also engaging with primary care docs to do the same. I think if, if I had a crystal ball and looked ahead as to what the ideal delivery system could be over the next five, 10 years and beyond, I think it would probably continue to be primary care docs taking the, the lead, working with patients in early stage kidney disease and perhaps helping them with decision support as patients progress to stage four and closer into stage five. The nephrologist can and should take a much more primary role as the patient especially gets into stage five and transitioning through kidney failure into dialysis. What the right mix is certainly depends on the physicians in market, depends on the, on the dynamics of what's available in terms of good, solid primary care and, and nephrology care. But over time, we all have to figure out that, that handoff to make sure that, again, the Primary care docs are ordering the right lab tests, and when they see the results, they have a nephrologist ready to go to engage. And if that nephrologist is not available, then to be able to work with someone like Cricket to help their patients through their, their kidney disease journey. Bobby, that's outstanding. Just all the, the different components of this infrastructure from the multidisciplinary care team, the AI, really activation of patients and engaging providers across the continuum through partnership. And, you know, I'm thinking about the 37 million people that are suffering and how important it is to have that early detection. And I, I wanted to ask you just where evidence-based clinical pathways also fit into this as well in terms of uh, being able to treat and fight kidney disease. I, I know there was some thought about incorporating chronic kidney disease in the Choosing Wisely campaign from the ABIM Foundation, which is really a set of guidelines to focus on evidence-based medicine. Can you maybe speak to a little bit about maybe how that's being incorporated into the physician workflow as well once patients are identified and how to better manage their care in an evidence-based way? Yeah, the interesting thing about acute disease is that I think people have known for an awful long time what has to happen. There, again, as we said earlier, there just hasn't been the mechanism to do it. And partly that's the payment mechanism, but also it is helping docs, helping the entire system for that matter, put in place the evidence-based pathways that have existed and been published for years. So again, we've known what to do. We just haven't had the wherewithal to do it. And even to this day, among some of the best practices across the country, there are some practices, Metrolina in North Carolina is a fantastic example, giving each of its docs clear protocols and checklists so that they know if a patient hits a GFR or a kidney function rate of 30, here's what you need to do. If they hit 20, here's what you need to do. Not in terms of what the doc needs to do necessarily, but here's what the care management follow-up needs to be. There are very sophisticated practices across the country who don't have those checklists, who don't have those in place. And these are very simple, straightforward things, but the impact on them, on, on putting them in place can be just unbelievably profound. So at every stage of CKD, we've tried to put in detailed protocols, detailed checklists for each and every one of the members of our care team. And more importantly, making sure that they jive with the systems with whom we're working. We just launched in Texas in, in November of 2020, a partnership with Baylor Scott and White, where we are enrolling their Medicare Advantage plans through the Scott and White Health Plan. And this is an integrated system 
who has been wonderful, a wonderful partner, and has been terrific in helping us integrate with not just their nephrologists, who have been spectacular, but also their broader care management team, so that we are now rounding weekly with the Scott and White care teams on all of the high-risk patients that we're treating. And the program has only been up and running for a few short months, and yet already we're receiving feedback from senior physician leaders saying, Cricket doesn't seem or feel like a vendor at all. You guys feel like a member of the team at the table helping us figure out what is the right care we can deliver to each of these patients at the right time. That kind of feedback has been rewarding, and it's been remarkable to watch us be able to plug in to an existing system as opposed to trying to supplant or replace it. So again, it's I think you're exactly right to focus on you know what are the evidence-based protocols and, and pathways. Let's put them in place in a systemic fashion so that we are making sure that we're all singing from the same sheet of music as opposed to having you know three doctors over here do, do X and 10 doctors over here do Y. Well, Bobby, you mentioned the importance of having a partnership. I appreciate you sharing the one that you have with Baylor Scott and White Health Plan. And I'm, I'm thinking about the importance of partnerships and, and how that's going to drive uh, innovation in the private sector. And indeed, there is so much right now happening with these new value-based kidney care partnerships and expanded service offerings, lots of investments taking place. I mean, there was a quote that I read from Brian Sivak, who's the managing director of KP Ventures. And he said, there might not have been a better time than to be an investor or an entrepreneur in the kidney space. It's a perfect confluence of events that it really uh, allows for some pretty intelligent bets. And I'm just thinking about this great opportunity right now, Bobby, that we have for value-based kidney care innovation. And I can't help but think about those creative partnerships, like, like the one you mentioned earlier. You know, you having providers and payers and specialty care management companies working together, really focusing on kidney disease. It seems like Cricket Health is really well positioned to be a driving force in this new frontier. And I read that recently you were selected to CB Insights Digital Health 150, which includes a lot of factors for future success like patent activity, investor quality, new sentiment analysis, market potential, competitive landscape, team strength, and of course, the importance of partnerships. So, Bobby, with all these factors converging together within the landscape that's really favorable to accelerating the value-based care kidney movement, how do you see Cricket Health growing in these next few years? And how are these creative partnerships like the one you've forged with Baylor Scott and White Health Plan or Consortium Health or Cigna or Blue Cross Blue Shield of California, how are these partnerships going to really be an enabler for the growth of the company? It is a remarkable time. I think you're exactly right. I think back sheepishly about five or six years ago, talking to several colleagues at Fresenius and actually across the kidney space, all in the dialysis field. And I remember joking to them that there's never going to be a dime of venture capital spent in kidney care because there's just no room for innovation. It's just, it's been stifled for decades and I don't see uh, how it could ever change. Fast forward five or six years, and I now find myself as CEO of one of those new venture-backed kidney care companies. So I suppose that means don't ever take investment advice from me. But it is an amazing time. There is so much activity going on here, and we were honored to be cited as, as an innovator in this space, and we're excited to be at the forefront of trying to drive change. 
as I look ahead, in 2020 has been a remarkable year. We were able to launch, as you said, with Blue Shield, California, and Cigna, and Scott and & White. And 2021 looks to be even better. We're in contracting with several Blues plans across the country and are going to be launching with them in, in a quarter or two to follow. We are not just working, however, with, with traditional payers, but also with health systems, integrated systems, building on the relationship we've got with Baylor, Scott & White. There are a lot of systems who are recognizing that, hey, they're at risk for this population. They don't have the wherewithal to be able to do all that they need to do to support kidney care patients and are seeking our help in driving that home. The other piece, so that's, that's payers and systems. The third leg to the growth stool as, as we see it, and which provides just an amazing opportunity, is partnerships with existing nephrology practices. So it is not that we are going to be a vendor to the practice, but rather create a, an integrated clinical and financial network with nephrologists across the country, whereby we are working with them to better serve the patients that are in their practice that are also enrolled in cricket and are covered by our payer partners. So we, are, we have a network of over uh, 50 physicians in California as we speak that are driving exactly those kinds of results. And we're in advanced conversations with a whole host of practices across the country to dramatically expand that network over the course of the next six to nine months. So the partnership with physicians, the partnerships with systems, the partnerships with payers, I think are all going to be just a, an amazing catalyst for growth over the next several years. We are very excited about what's to come. And I just couldn't be more pleased about building on the foundation of the results we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, if our patients are three and a half times more likely to start dialysis at home than the national average, as we expand our reach, as we expand our, our contact with patients across the country, we're just really thrilled about the impact that we can have. Bobby, just a quick follow-up question to that. Are you guys sharing risk then? And with these partnerships? Absolutely. We are sharing risk across a variety of fronts, and we're kind of excited to meet the payers wherever they are. I suppose it's no surprise that not every payer is created equal and that there's different levels of risk and different mechanisms that payers would want to implement. And we're happy to do a variety of contracting mechanisms to make sure that happens. And what I mean by that specifically is some payers are sick and tired of getting in fights with their provider network over a shared savings. They don't want to fight over the benchmark spending amount, and they don't want to beat each other up over retrospective reconciliation. And so for them, we, we have implemented arrangements where we'll get paid a PMPM based on our enrolled or our engaged membership, and then take upside or downside risk based on our achievement against certain clinical outcomes. And the interesting part about kidney disease is that the clinical outcomes that are most important to the patient also are usually the most tightly aligned with cost. So as we think about outpatient starts or home dialysis starts or reductions in hospitalizations are so significantly aligned with cost, those are the kinds of things that the payers want to make sure that we are uh, living up to. And we're more than happy to take upside and downside risk uh, on that basis. For other plans, Medicare Advantage plans, especially who are more accustomed and, and more willing to hold their providers accountable based on total cost of care, we are happy to do that. And so we go at risk based on total cost of care, working with them to establish a, a predetermined benchmark, and then putting our fees at risk based on how we achieve against that benchmark. So absolutely, we are more than happy to go at risk. I think in, the, in this day and age, and quite frankly, it makes all the sense in the world, the only way we're going to improve this healthcare system, the only way we're going to improve outcomes and reduce the dramatic amounts of spend that we have in the system, in this sector, and in healthcare as a whole, is to put more clinical and financial accountability on payers. And we are more than willing to step up and, and make sure that we accept that risk. 
Thanks, Bobby, for that. I want to talk a little bit about the founding of Cricket. I'm just really impressed by something that Arvind Rajan said in an interview a few years ago when he and Vince Kim co-founded Cricket Health in 2016. We were looking for a hard problem to tackle in healthcare. One where if we could help patients avoid institutional care settings and instead remain at home, we could have the greatest impact in both patient outcomes and cost of care. That took us to CKD, which is kind of a microcosm of everything that is broken in the U.S. healthcare system. So we've talked about these challenges, the microcosm of everything that's broken, and I want to talk a bit about the care at home model a little more, this movement and the future role of hospitals in the kidney care landscape. With care becoming more virtualized and procedures shifting more and more into the ambulatory setting or the home, hospitals of the future will need to be asset light. And with this emphasis on ambulatory care, there's also a component of consumerism and that it impacts the role of the hospital change. So I wanna think about both of these things. Will this trend towards care at home that's supported by multidisciplinary care teams and community partnerships with hospitals and providers, will it address the current challenges of inconsistent patient education and poor health literacy that often leads to delayed or incomplete plans of action and, and these tremendous cost burdens that we're talking about on the healthcare system. So kind of a multi-part question, what is a hospital's reaction and do you see the, an impact on consumerism and patient literacy? I guess first at the outset, let me just say, I love the quote that Arvind gave so many years ago. I think the, we can all acknowledge that the world is littered with the uh, corpses of healthcare startups that were founded by Silicon Valley execs who thought, hey, I know, I'm a smart person. I can figure out healthcare. I'll solve it. And after about six or 12 or 18 months, they realized, wow, this is this is an intractable problem. I, I can't figure it out. I'm going to close up shop and, and go home. Arvin and Vince are just remarkable people. And I came to Cricket for two reasons. One was because I finally found a place and a group of people that approached how to solve the really challenging problems of kidney care in a holistic fashion, i.e. go upstream, engage the entire patient, as opposed to just thinking about dialysis. But the second was Arvin's really intentional focus on how to build an organization and how to succeed, how to think about culture and how culture drives success. But also, as we've talked about, this intentional focus on community, on patient engagement, all of the things that sound fluffy and sound fuzzy, but have such an enormous impact. That's why the patient peer mentor is such an important part of our model. It's why the platform that we've built that enables our providers to see what patients are seeing and watching and engage them real time. That's why the, the community online community of patients that we curate continually has such an amazing impact. All of that together is what's enabled us to you know, unlock patient engagement to such an, an amazing degree. But that to me is, is, I think what is, at least in my head, is what's about consumerism in healthcare. It's about educating the patient. It's about helping people understand so much more about their condition, about their disease, so that they can make informed decisions. For so long, we've relied on the doctor to diagnose the patient and say, here are your options, and here's really what I suggest. And it really hasn't been a suggestion in historically, it's, it's been an order. And I think that people are finally waking up and realizing that, no, I'm gonna take charge of my own life. I have my own desires, my own values. This is what I want to achieve. Now, what's the best path of helping me get there? What's the best course of healthcare that I can pursue to help me achieve those goals and, and satisfy those values? So I think consumerism in healthcare is clearly, obviously, where things are going. And I think platforms and services like Cricket are going to enable that. 
I'm not smart enough to presume what a hospital should or shouldn't do or what a hospital is going to have to look like. But I would agree with your premise that in all likelihood, it's going to make them look a lot lighter from an asset perspective and a lot heavier in terms of patient engagement and uh, promotion of consumerism. I think that's where it has to go. I was talking to somebody else a couple of weeks ago who said, there are lots of front doors into the healthcare system for patients. You can go to the hospital, you can go to the ER, you can go to your primary care, you can go to a doc in the box. The challenge is the sidewalk up to the front doors is broken. Or in fact, there's only one sidewalk and that one sidewalk is Google. The only mechanism for a patient right now to learn is to jump on Google, type in their symptoms and figure out on their own, oh, I must, I have a backache. It must be cancer. That is just a horrifically bad way of doing things. And so if we can recreate the sidewalks, if we can figure out a better way to engage the patient earlier so they can learn much more about their condition, start to think about what's important to them, engage clinicians, care teams supplied by Cricket or by the hospital so that they can better understand not just their options, but how to capitalize on the options that they want. Then I think we'll have a much better, more consumer-driven healthcare system that's far more rational from the patient's perspective. Well, Bobby, I want also wanted to ask you about how we can make the system more equitable. I mean, we have this equity imperative right now in the value-based care movement. You look at kidney care, the socially disadvantaged and vulnerable populations are the ones that experience a disproportionate burden of CKD, and they're least likely to receive effective treatments to reduce the risk of complications and improve their outcomes. And there's obviously a racial component to this as well. I mean, Black Americans are three and a half times more likely than white Americans to experience kidney failure. And Black Americans are less likely to do home dialysis or to get a kidney transplant than white Americans. And then there's this COVID-19 component as well, since dialysis patients with COVID-19 have a higher mortality than any other population. So communities are, are now thinking about how do we prioritize vaccinations for CKD patients? And these disparities in care have been highlighted by this pandemic that we're in. And, and it's really elevated this issue of health equity and social justice. And recently, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, was even quoted as saying, the COVID-19 public health crisis has shown a microscope on the gross disparities that existed based on race and income that existed long before we even heard the word coronavirus. So, Bobby, with all this in mind, I wanted to ask you about how Cricket Health is looking at this equity imperative to focus efforts in value-based kidney care to deliver more equitable outcomes for everyone dealing with CKD. It's a phenomenally hard challenge. I'm glad you raised it. And there's no question that you look at the incident rate of, of kidney disease and the disproportionate impact it has on Black Americans, on people of color in this nation, it hits you square in the face. And if you don't think intentionally about how to solve that, then it's just a, it would be a tragic missed opportunity. I think one of the powers of Cricket is that we are able to, again, engage patients in their home and engage an awful lot of patients across our platform. But we also, also acknowledge that our, our first point of entry can be virtual. And there are an awful lot of folks, given that kidney disease disproportionately impacts those who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, who may not have access to internet, who may not have reliable Wi-Fi or broadband, for whom this might be a challenge. Similarly, this is an older population and a sicker population. And the critique often is, well, my grandparents are never gonna be able to figure out the phone or inter interact over the, over the web. A couple of things. First, we have been 
just pleasantly surprised at the engagement rates across all of our deployments. If you look at what, again, what we did at Scott and White with a Medicare Advantage plan, who, you know, these members should be older and sicker than our, their counterparts at a commercial plan. The uptick with uh, the Scott and White population has been spectacular. Uh, the engagement rates have been spectacular. And, you know, the retention rate is, again, up at 90%. So this notion that your grandmother and grandfather don't know how to use the web, I think we're putting to the test and showing that to be not entirely accurate. But also, to, you know, to be clear, there are lots of people who may not have adequate access. And for them, we are supplying our services in an offline fashion. We can engage patients over the phone. We send materials via regular mail. For some, we can actually send out devices to allow them to access the internet. So we recognize that we need to make sure that we meet the patients where they are. And for some of our high-risk patients, we will actually do home visits. So send caregivers and nurses and navigators to the home. So we recognize it's, it's got to be a multimodal solution in order to really attack this, attack this problem. We are incredibly optimistic at, and excited about a lot of the deployments that we've got scheduled for the, uh, the rest of this year. Our population, while small at the outset, has grown in such a fashion. We are, um, our demographics reflect the demographics of the, of the nation as a whole. And we've been really gratified to see across all demographics, across all races, people are engaging in seeing the power of what we're offering. And a huge component of this is to hire care teams that are local to the markets in which we're operating. We want to make sure that our clinicians reflect the population that they're serving, that they share the same language, that they sh share the same home, that they share the same background so they can relate to patients to help them understand. We understand that that hospital is a challenge or that driving across that freeway is, is a huge challenge. So again, it's all about meeting the patients where they are and being able to relate to them. Having a patient talk to somebody nine states away who doesn't look like them, who doesn't sound like them, it's going to be a challenge to make that real strong connection and to, again, foster those relationships of trust. So it's a really complicated problem. There are lots of different aspects to how to solve it. We have by no means figured it all out, but I am very encouraged by what we've done thus far. Bobby, as we wrap up today, you know, I want to recognize your leadership and thank you for your, your great leadership and vision in this movement towards value-based kidney care. Could you share some final thoughts with our listeners, kind of a leadership perspective, whether you're talking to executives or value-minded professionals or others in the industry who are maybe considering the value-based movement or haven't necessarily taken their first steps in value contracting what are your words of advice? What are, what are your challenges that you would share with them? You know, your perspective on how we can win this race to value with chronic kidney disease. It is not easy. And it's particularly challenging for the legacy players, whether it's existing dialysis providers or hospitals or systems who are trying to move from fee-for-service to value. I found that was a challenge when I was at Fresenius. I mean, I love the people I've worked with at Fresenius. I love the people that are still there. Some of my best friends still work there. But it is a challenge to think about my biggest revenue center in dialysis clinics, if I move to a full value-based arrangement, is going to be my biggest cost center overnight. How do you manage that? It's a colossal challenge that I don't envy at all. I think one of the interesting things that's happened over the last several years, whether it's in kidney care or across the healthcare spectrum, is that you're starting to see new entrants who are not bound by the constraints of the past, who don't have the sunk cost, if you will, of trying to figure out how do we manage that transformation of our biggest revenue source being our biggest cost center overnight. And that's one of the freedoms that we have at Cricket. Um, we can design what we think is the ideal delivery model on day one and scale it. 
Now, it's not easy, not by a long shot, and you've got entrenched interests that you have to overcome. And I think a lot of it, quite frankly, is helping the individual physician understand what it means to to be successful in a value-based world. The good news is, as hard as that sounds, and I think a lot of us have, have wrung our hands an awful lot about how to help the physicians migrate or survive this transition, um, doctors, not just by and large, but doctors to a person, just want to do the right thing for their patients. And in many respects, the move towards value has helped them realize that this is how they want to practice, that they do want to take a holistic look, that they do want to engage early. Nephrologists in particular, there's a... I, can't tell you how many I've talked to who have said, listen, we've wanted for years to spend more time with our CKD patients. It just economically didn't make sense for our practice. And we would have gone under it had we you know, ignored our, our dialysis patients or spent too much time. We had to find the right balance. And usually that always tipped the scales towards dialysis. So when you enter a value-based world, it helps the docs normalize, if you will. It helps the economics normalize such that the docs can strike the better balance and more sane balance in terms of going upstream as opposed to just focusing on rounding in the dialysis clinic. So it is a big challenge as we've talked about. There's so many, as you dive into whether it's just the kidney care space or any other sector, the dynamics of the marketplace, the dynamics of the provider system, the, the payers, never mind all the clinical aspects of whatever sector you're talking about, it gets very, very complicated very, very quickly. For us, what we have found effective is to focus on what we know, which is delivering, yes, our multidisciplinary care team, but enabled by our digital platform and focus on that. If we get distracted by trying to go too far upstream and manage hypertension or diabetes, we won't be successful. If we go too far downstream and try and compete with physicians and the existing dialysis providers on you know, replicating the, the network of 6,000 dialysis clinics, we won't be successful. So it's really finding where you can have the biggest impact and focusing all of your time and attention on that. That so far has served us well, and we're excited about hopefully what's to come. Bobby Sapuka, thank you for joining us today in the race to value. It really seems that Cricket Health has the solution at hand in value-based kidney care with world-class tech-enabled multidisciplinary care, and you're really achieving great outcomes for patients with chronic kidney disease. How can listeners find out more about your company and the great work that you're doing there? First of all, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've had a fantastic time. If anyone wants to learn more, I think the easiest thing is just to go online. You can find us at crickethealth.com. There you'll find a whole host of information about our platform, how we approach the disease, what we're doing for our patients. So whether you're a patient, a provider, or a payer partner, just go to crickethealth.com uh, and you can find out so much more. Again, really appreciate you guys. The quotes you pulled out, the stats you pulled out, it was, it was terrific. I really enjoyed it. Well, we enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much for joining us. 